Well, good morning to you. As he said, my name is Dan Olson, and I'm one of the elders here at uh, Cedar Home. Today, our lead pastor, Dan Halleck, and his wife, and our worship pastor, Dylan and Natalie, are on their way to Indianapolis, Indiana, for a conference. And so I have the opportunity and privilege to uh, speak to you today. Um, I have a picture I want you to see. That picture was uh, taken of me in 1975. I was at uh, Vancouver Bible College, and I'm in the process of leading chapel. Um, you notice that not much has changed. <laughs> All right, well, I tell by your laughter if something has changed. I don't wear ties anymore. That young man was looking into an uncertain future, but he was preparing, getting ready. And interestingly enough, I find myself in that exact same spot again today. So it's kind of a neat opportunity for me to be up here and be able to speak to you this morning. I also want you to know that while I'm speaking today from Acts chapter 9, and it wasn't very long ago that Pastor Dan did this exact same passage, I want you to know that I'm not trying to add to anything that he said. I'm not thinking that he missed some really important stuff and I gotta clean it up. I'm not thinking any of that stuff. I was just struck by the very first verse that we're going to read. So let's turn to Acts chapter nine and read verses one through 19. This is in the English Standard Version, Acts chapter nine. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, go to a street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. 
And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard about many from this man, about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. Now, while I'm not intending to give you a history lesson today, I think it is important to get a sense of what's going on at this point in time. Have you ever been out at a lake or a pond and that baby is crystal clear and calm? Is there anyone in here who doesn't want to pick up a rock and throw it into that water? And of course, you're going to look for the biggest rock that you can possibly throw at least three feet away from the shore. Because the bigger the splash, the greater fun it will be. And so you go and get that rock, and you heave it in the air as high as you can, and then you stop and watch, and the rock goes kersploosh. And then you watch as the ripples run out and cover the entire pond. The death of and resurrection of Jesus Christ was like that in the world of his day. There was a huge hubbub and disturbance in Jerusalem on that fateful day when Jesus was put to death on the cross. It didn't disturb the rest of the world that much. They didn't even know about it. But slowly over time, those concentric circles moving out from that huge interruption in our still pond had time to ripple throughout the entire Roman Empire. And it started this way. The fledgling church did what Jesus commanded them to do, to be his witnesses, starting right in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. And so the church was right there in the temple in Jerusalem. And at first, they're accepted. They're Jews like everyone else. They have a right to be there. But it doesn't take very long before they are at odds with the very Sanhedrin that put Jesus to death. We find in Acts chapter 7 that there's a confrontation that kind of crystallizes the situation when Stephen, a Hellenistic Jew, who has been appointed by the church as a deacon, comes in conflict, serious conflict with the Sanhedrin. He's eloquent. He's very persuasive, and therefore they hate him. And so he is arrested and brought before a small number of the Sanhedrin, and he's accused of blasphemy. It's very clear from the language in the chapter that they have no respect for him. 
they think a Hellenistic Jew, he's not going to know the, the, he's not going to know his Judaism as well as we do. And then if you read chapter 7, you see Stephen begin at the very beginning of Judaism and basically gives a history lesson to the leaders of the Jews. It says in the passage at the end of that lesson, they were so cut to the quick, they gnash their teeth at him and they drag him out of the city and they stone him to death. Then Acts 8 begins by telling us that persecution broke out against the church immediately following that Stephen's death and Saul was going from house to house dragging people off to prison, both men and women. Note also in the passage that Saul is a young Greek-speaking Jew from Tarsus. He's likely looking to make a name for himself and his means of choice was to violently stamp out what's now called the way. It's pretty clear if you read that passage carefully that he is being used by the high priest. It's likely even Pilate had his fingers in that situation. We know that because he's given Roman soldiers to go with him and to effect the, uh, the arrests. He's dabbling in politics, isn't he? Where the ground is constantly shifting and things can get pretty nasty. But he, for his part, he is a true believer. Here's how he describes it himself. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So as I said at the beginning here, I'm struck by the phrase, breathing threats and murder. I'm not intending to do a deep clinical examination of the mindset of Paul. There are university courses where they take months, week, they take years to dive into that. I'm just struck by those words, breathing threats and murder. How is it that a person committed to God breathes such things? The most important phrase in Judaism is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. But the very next verse says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So how does love for God become the inspiration and expiration, the breathing of threats and murder. Paul himself says that he was steeped in the religion of his people. He describes himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were men who were dedicated to knowing everything there was to know about God 
about the Bible, which at that time was the Old Testament, and specifically the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. These were religious men. And yet here is some of what Jesus had to say about them. The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves, they're unwilling to move them with a finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. That doesn't sound like an endorsement, does it? It sounds like a judgment. And here's Paul, proclaiming himself as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, the top of the, of the crop, the best in the group. And his commitment to persecuting the church came out of this dedication to God. How did he get there? How does a disagreement about what faith should mean end up in murder and death? Well, there's some obs observations I'd like to share with you about that. The first one is that True religion demands a rigid life. Oh boy, I'm falling apart. Let me start over. <laughs> True religion demands a rigid life. And this rigidity extends to every facet of life. Every question that you can ask has an answer. There's little that cannot be explained we are right, and those who do not believe as we do are wrong. In fact, we soon begin to take on a godlike disdain of all transgressors. And in our hearts, we start calling down judgment from God on them. Soon we find ourselves gleeful of their coming destruction, completely forgetting mercy, grace, forgiveness. Beware of this. Beware of mistaking religion for faith. Beware of the easy condemnation of sinners, forgetting that there but for the grace of God go I. Religion is a system of belief that does really not need God. And it does not bring life. It brings death. In Hebrews we read, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You see, getting your power for living 
from joy, from love, from peace. In short, the fruits of the Spirit is just this. That fruit is perishable. It must be renewed and refreshed regularly. Whereas hatred, pain, vengeance gives almost long-lasting, unbreakable power. And you know what I'm talking about. You know people who will never, ever forgive that father, that mother, that brother, that sister, that friend who hurt them. They cannot and they will not forgive. It burns in their heart and it is the power behind everything that they do. No, I will never be hurt again. And then what happens? They harden and they get a mask of religion. They put that on and they look good. But what's really fueling them is hatred, pain, agony. You also know people who absolutely cannot forgive themselves. They've done something, whatever it is. And their belief is that God cannot forgive me. He might be able to forgive you and he might be able to forgive you, but what I've done, you just don't know. And God can't forgive me. What growth there might be spiritually is stunted and sparse, choked again by self-loathing whose power cannot be broken. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These fruits can't grow in that soil. And it is sometimes hard work to cultivate these things in our lives by sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning from him day by day. And so you see, I think that's what happened in the heart of Saul. Either somebody hurt him or he did something that he was convinced, God couldn't forgive me for that. And so I have to prove to him that I'm worthy. I have to, I have to, I have to. And so we did. He sought letters of authority from the chief priest to go to Damascus and do the same thing in Damascus that he had done in Jerusalem. Now Damascus is north and northeast of Jerusalem. If I could... If I could have found a decent map to get up on the wall, I would have done that. So if you need to, you can look in your Bible. Usually at the back part, they've got a map. Damascus is north, northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And so you would have had to start out from Jerusalem and go down that long, windy road that Jesus talked about in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then you get way, way down by the Jordan River. You have to cross the Jordan River. And then it's a rather arduous trek. Uh, it's approximately a six-day journey by foot if you really press it. Uh, if you don't really press it, it, it takes a little longer. So more than likely, if they were going to get there quick, because Paul is hot to get at, in, at the Christians in Damascus, they would have had to have left immediately after the Sabbath. 
Now, we don't know exactly what time of year it is. We're, we're not told those things. But you can imagine, it was a difficult trip. And it's interesting to me that his confrontation with the risen Christ happens just outside of Damascus. And I think that's because if it had happened right outside of Jerusalem, he would have just turned around and gone right back to Jerusalem and been back in the same thing he was. But this event that changed his life is so important to Paul that it's recounted for us in just the book of Acts alone three separate times. Here in Acts chapter 9 for the first time, it appears again in chapter 22 when he is before the Jews in Jerusalem, and again finally in chapter 26 when he's before Agrippa and Festus. And each time you read it, there's just a little bit different uh, revelation of what Jesus said to him. But the immediate consequence of the confrontation is that he's blind. Now he had been blinded by his religion, he had been blinded by hate, he had been blinded by the desire to prove his worthiness through his rabid devotion and persecution of those that he considered blasphemers. And now he's literally blinded by Christ. And so they lead him into the city to the house of Judas where he does not eat, he does not drink, he just thinks and he prays. Now I, I really enjoy the situation that's laid out for us at this point and you'll see in a minute or two why. Because it concerns a man named Ananias. We don't know how old he was. We don't know what he did for a living. We don't know anything about him except that he's described as a disciple, a follower, a believer in Jesus. And it says in the passage that the Lord appeared to him in a vision. Now we're not told his reaction other than this response. He says, here I am. Take some time this week and go search your Bible for all of the different times that God has spoken to a man and that person has said, here I am. You'll find a very impressive list. So he speaks to Ananias and he gives him very specific directions. Okay, put it in your GPS for a street called Straight. The house is a man named Judas. You'll find a guy there by the name of Saul of Tarsus. He's praying. He's seen a vision of a man named Ananias. That's why I'm talking to you. Ananias comes in, lay his hands on him. He sees this in a vision so that he can regain his sight. Now the religious answer here demands, yes sir, I'm going right now. But Ananias, perhaps trembling, maybe even clearing his throat, says, uh, are you sure? It could be a trick. Oh, that's the Dan Olson paraphrase. Imagine implying that God might have overlooked something. He might have forgotten a tiny detail. I don't know if that reveals fear, folly, or faith. But Jesus doesn't condemn him. He doesn't belittle him, and he certainly doesn't smite him. He says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. 
Interesting that he's telling an instrument about another instrument. You see, we're not all called to be an Apostle Paul, writer of Scripture, missionary to the Gentiles, patriarch of the church. But we are called to be instruments of God, working for him wherever we're placed, doing whatever he has directed us to do. In Matthew, Jesus makes it very clear what his expectation is of us. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing and when he comes. To make this even clearer, he told a parable to illustrate it. It's one that you know very well, so I'm only going to quote that one section that I'm interested in here. And he said to the one who had received the five talents, come forward, and bringing his five talents and five talents more, he said, Master, you have delivered me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. We, you and me, are to be the trembling Ananias going into the world. At work in the world as Jesus commands. In the classroom. In the nursery. On the lawnmower. At the computer. Visiting a sick or lonely friend working on the soundboard, playing the drums or a guitar, speaking to a neighbor, helping at your child's school, being friendly to that new kid in town who doesn't know a soul, heading off to Panama, sewing a dress, okay, two, all right, three, oh, come on, four, serving cake and coffee. I invite you to be an Ananias today. Not so you can hear those words. That's not your motivation. Your motivation is to love and respond to your Savior. But those words are there. Let's stand and close in prayer. Father, you have called each and every one of us to work in the fields. To reach and touch, to love and support, to pray, to laugh, to sing. I pray that that would be what we are about on that day when you return, whenever that is. We want you to come back. We long for that day. 
But until then, we'll be working. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.